It is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. Let's get into this week's top headlines. The continued rise in COVID-19 infections in the state, putting pressure on New Hampshire's hospital system. A House committee has approved a plan that would make dramatic changes to the state's congressional districts, and renters continue to struggle under the state's housing crisis. Joining me now to talk about all of that and more is NHPR's Casey McDermott and New Hampshire Bulletin's Amanda Koki. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you both for coming into the studio this morning. You know, there are over 300 people currently hospitalized with COVID. That is the highest number since early January. Casey, can you put these latest COVID numbers into context for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, like you just said, this is really the most intense that we've seen since kind of the worst of the winter surge last year. So that means that it surpassed um, the surge that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic in the spring of 2020, as well as the kind of bump that we saw earlier this spring as well. And, um, you know, those numbers are, are looking like they are, you know, comparable even to yeah. um, that winter surge that we saw earlier this year. And it's, of course, it's not just cases, it's, it's hospitalization. Some hospitals are saying they're struggling now to keep up as, as they're having to admit more patients for serious cases of COVID. And of course, that is a domino effect on other care and, and other services. What kind of strain is, is this stage of the pandemic putting on the state's hospital system? Sure. So, um, you know, I think as, as listeners may have heard, um, we had the CEO of Wentworth Douglas Hospital on recently talking about just that. And, um, you know, what I gathered from him and what I gathered from just kind of following some coverage of this otherwise is that it's really, you know, it's not just the pressure from COVID. It's also the pressure from other people that are seeking medical care or even, you know, people who had other medical procedures delayed throughout this very, very long pandemic that we've been in. Um, A lot of that kind of backing up and putting pressure on our local hospitals. And of course, pressure on emergency rooms and some some places are saying, you know, don't come to the ER unless you really, really have to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a message that I've seen from hospitals. It's also a message I I've seen echoed from some um, local public health offices as well. Let's turn to some political news from the week. The Republican-led House Redistricting Committee voted through a plan that would make dramatic changes to the state's congressional districts. Amanda, I know you've been reporting on this. Can you tell us more about the impact that this will have on the state's congressional seats? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of how just how dramatic these changes are, the map is moving 75 towns or roughly a quarter of the state from one district into another. And that's the most dramatic change we've seen in about a century. Um, so this would make the con- the first congressional district, which is currently represented by Democrat Chris Pappas, more Republican, um, more friendly to Republican candidates. And the second congressional district, currently represented by Annie Custer, would become more solidly favorable to a Democratic uh, candidate running there. And what's been the response from Democrats? Democrats have really come down hard on this plan. They are calling it unfair and saying that it is gerrymandered, which is just basically an attempt to give partisan advantage to one party over another Um And they say that this is an attempt to rig elections um, in favor of Republicans, and they're pointing out the impacts that this is going to have for the next 10 years. Now, Governor Sununu has said he'd veto gerrymandered congressional maps. What has he been saying about this, this, this proposal right now? So Sunu has said that he would like to see more competitive districts, but that these maps do seem to pass what he calls legal muster. So it's not the final step, though, in, the, in this this process. So what happens next? That's correct. So the maps are going to be up for a vote in front of the full House, um, which will likely be in, in January when the session um, gets underway. Um, then they're going to cross over to the Senate. And there could be House amendments that are introduced um, at that point. So the maps may still undergo some changes before they're 
finalized. Um, the Senate's going to be doing some work on the Executive Council and the New Hampshire Senate districts. Um, that work is expected to start in mid-December, um, and then the Senate will vote on those maps likely in mid-January. We're sort of looking at a deadline of June 1st um, because that's the deadline for candidates to register to run for office, so they have to know um, where they're running. And June 1st seems like a long way away, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so we're not anywhere near the end of this process yet, but we'll be watching it, of course. It is Morning Edition on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news with New Hampshire Bulletins of Medigoki and NHPR's Casey McDermott. By the way, you can let us know your thoughts and questions on the recap by sending us an email anytime to voices at nhpr.org. I want to turn our attention now to the housing crisis here in New Hampshire. Casey, you published a feature this week on renters in Manchester who are facing eviction and substandard housing conditions. Can you tell us about some of the issues that local tenants are are dealing with? Yeah, I think um, so. Just to kind of set the scene, um, these are renters that have, um, you know, lived in one particular building um, for varying lengths of time, um, one of whom lived there for, for well over a decade and told me that, you know, pretty much from the start, she was worried about the condition of her apartment. But as was the case for many of her um, neighbors um, and other renters across the city, you know, there's not a lot of other options. So um, for someone who is of, you know, lower or moderate income, um, it's not easy to really have a lot of other alternatives, even if the place that you're living um, is not great. Um, And by not great, I mean leaks, I mean bugs, I mean, um, you know, recurrent issues with you know, all, all kinds of things in their apartments. Um, several different tenants told me about kind of falling ceilings or like just kind of decaying ceilings over the years um, in addition to other issues. So this is not just kind of a like, you know, mild problem. This mm-hmm. is kind of ongoing um, systemic structural issues that they described with their homes. And the other layer here is that, as you alluded to, we're also dealing with a housing crisis. We're also dealing with a housing market that is really you know, kind of unprecedented. So what that means is that um, renters in particular that have lived in substandard housing are also finding themselves in some cases facing this kind of new threat of eviction from, um, you know, perhaps they live in a house that's under market value. So that is to some people appealing if they're looking to buy houses and renovate. Um, So as was the case for the renters that I spoke with in this story, um, you know, they had a new owner who came in who said, look, I agree, this property is in really rough shape. I want to renovate it. But in order to do that, he needed some of those same tenants out. Mm -hmm. And it just, again, it creates this this cycle because the the housing market is so tight, especially for low-income renters. Indeed, indeed. Uh, What kind of response did you get from property owners and and landlords about, uh, you know, bringing to light these unsafe housing conditions? Yeah, so I actually, um, you know, this this building in particular has cycled through a few different owners in recent years. I was able to to connect with um, people affiliated with um, kind of two of the the three previous owners. Um, And both of them said, you know, they acknowledged to some extent that, Yet the property had problems, um, you know, said that they did their best to try to fix it. Um, the the owner who bought it most recently said that, you know, he really sees the potential to make it, in his words, kind of a shining star in the neighborhood and that he wanted to kind of be a good example to other 
owners about how they could take care of their buildings. Um, now, at the same time, I asked him, you know, was there a different way to kind of accomplish these goals without having to basically displace the families that are in there currently? And he said that he didn't believe that he had the budget or the responsibility to, um, you know, for example, put the families in a hotel or give them kind of alternate means of um, having a roof over their heads while these renovations so are complete. So what was he offering to do? Anything? No, no. I mean, he he has worked with the tenants in some cases to give, yeah. um, you know, more time to find new places to live. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the tenants, um, several of them still have faced eviction. Some of them have been able to find other places, but it hasn't really been easy for them. What about city regulations, Casey? What's the city of Manchester doing to, to hold property owners accountable? Yeah, yeah. So that was really, I mean, you know, we looked, as I said, at this one particular building, but it really was a story about how that building fit into kind of a larger regulatory structure in Manchester. And Manchester in particular is worth focusing on because it's the state's largest city and it also has one of the most robust housing codes on the books. So theoretically, like they are among the most well-equipped to deal with substandard housing or other issues. Um, what we found though, is that the city is falling short um, and that in some ways, you know, city officials acknowledge that they're falling short. They say that the rules right now are not really equipped to deal with the reality of what tenants are living with, that they deal with just kind of the bare, bare minimum of safety issues. Um, however, you know, the, the city official that I talked to said that there are some concerns about making rules stricter because some people believe that that would have an impact on the availability of housing. So again, do you feel it's in your reporting that this is not only regulation that needs to be changed, but also enforcement itself? I think that, um, you know, the takeaway was that like the city has tools to, um, you know, police this. Um, and in some cases it was taking, you know, the city was giving property owners as many as a dozen chances to fix issues mm. with their buildings. So I think, you know, one could quibble about whether or not that's adequate enforcement. But I think that what we were trying to show was like, in some cases, the city is, um, you know, fairly lenient with, um, you know, with the property owners. Yeah. Now, you've been working on a resource guide for renters who are dealing with evictions or substandard housing conditions, and, and readers should be on the lookout for that. Uh, what kind of information will that provide? Sure. So um, people should keep an eye open for that, I think, ideally in the next week or so, um, perhaps even sooner. And this is really the result of conversations that we've been trying to have with people about their housing concerns. Um, it was informed by the reporting I just described, as well as other reporting that we've been doing in, you know, eviction hearings and elsewhere and talking with other advocacy groups. So this is really um, meant to kind of take information that can be hard to find, that can be scattered, um, and put it into a single resource to help people understand their housing rights when it comes to eviction or substandard housing or, um, you know, a number of other topics. And, of course, readers can find that at NHPR.org. Okay. Uh, Amanda, I want to, to talk to you about your reporting of the state's Public Utilities Commission decision to reject statewide energy efficiency plans uh, this past week. Can, can you explain what the plan would have done? Yes. Yeah, so this plan was one of the, the, the state's most ambitious plan to date. Um, it would have increased funding for state energy efficiency programs. These are things like home weatherization, providing rebates for those services, um, as well as energy efficient appliances. Um, and that funding would have been $350 million over the next three years. Um, the authors of this plan say that it would have created um, about $1.3 billion in the return on investment. Um, and it would have created additional jobs and, and had trickle-down effects that were positive for the local economy. Um, 
keeping that money local as opposed to exporting it for things like fossil fuels, which are uh, out of state. Sure. So why did the Public Utilities Commission reject it? So in the order, the information that we have says that the the commissioners basically are arguing that this order would have um, placed too high of a burden on, on New Hampshire ratepayers. So they're basically arguing that the, the price tag um, was was too high. And they also took issue with the cost effectiveness test that was used to determine um, how much money that these measures would have generated in, in returns. Um, that test had been previously approved by the commission. So that's created some some waves among among those who are who are watching this closely. Yeah, and speaking of which, advocates I know for energy efficiency are not backing down. It looks like th- this decision could face some legal challenges. Is that true? Yeah, that's that is true. Um so the most outspoken um critic of this has has been the consumer advocate and he has um said that he will pursue uh, he's considering pursuing legal action against this. Um and you know, talking with the other parties involved. So those include the utilities. The utilities haven't said yet if they will be taking that that route or not, um, although it's it's certainly uh, a possibility moving forward. So in the meantime, what does it mean for New Hampshire's energy efficiency programs? So right now, the with um, Eversource's decision um, announcement that they made earlier this week, they've been telling contractors um, that they basically need to stop doing new work. They can only really sort of work on the jobs that are already, where work has already begun. Mm. Um, the contractors have, some of the contractors have told me that this is effectively a stop a stop work order for them. They're really unsure about what it means for the future of their, their businesses. Um, a lot of people that are interested in these services have have been put on wait lists already, and those lists are, are likely to grow. Um, the rebates that um, folks have been used to getting for these programs are, are probably going to go down. Um, going to have even, to leave it there. Sure. Unfortunately, there's so much more to talk to, and we will get to that, I'm sure, in the weeks to come. NHPR's Casey McDermott, New Hampshire Bulletin's Amanda Goki, thank you both so much for joining us on the New Hampshire, New Hampshire News Recap this morning. Thanks for having us. It is Morning Edition from NHPR.